Why don't we get started and start by prayer? And uh, I'll go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing on our teaching of the word this morning. So, Lord, we thank you for this day, the Lord's day. We thank you for the privilege to come and study your word and the great words of David in Psalm 22. We thank you for the privilege to praise and worship you before the assembly this morning and to hear the word of God preached and to encourage one another. And Lord, bless the teaching, bless the teacher that he would teach it faithfully. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're continuing our study through the Psalms, and this morning we're going to look at Psalm 22. So I'll put handouts over here. So if you're just coming in, we've got handouts, and I'll put some over here, handouts for everyone. This is really hard for the audio guys when the teacher is roaming everywhere. Okay, I'm going to read Psalm 22, and you're going to laugh at me, but I left my regular glasses at home. My wife is doing the rescue mission to go home and get my glasses. So i got to read my pres- with my prescription sunglasses for a while. <laughs> oh, I'll be okay, I think, Steve. Thank you anyway. So I'm going to read Psalm 22. We're in Psalm 22 this morning. So I'll begin with verse 1. And verse 1 actually is the superscription of this psalm. For the choir director upon Ayelet HaShahar, a psalm of David, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but thou dost not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet thou art holy. O thou who art enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in thee our fathers trusted. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. To thee they cried out and were delivered. In thee they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet thou art he who didst bring me forth from the womb. Thou didst make me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And thou dost lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But thou, O Lord, be not far off. O thou my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. 
So I'm reading, this is the 1975 edition of the New American Standard. It's a Hebrew perfect tense, and we'll see. Some of the other newer translations like the New King James and the, New Amer- and the uh, ESV have it that sense. The whole psalm changes. Answer David. You have answered me. The whole psalm. David's in great lament. But listen to these last few words. I will tell of thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise thee. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From thee comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. And the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise him. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. If you came in late, I apologize. I left my normal glasses at home, so I'm using my prescription sunglasses, but my wife is running the rescue mission for me. (laughs) So we'll have a handoff shortly. So I'd like to ask this question in light of Psalm 22. Have you ever felt abandoned by God as though he was not answering or hearing your prayers? Of course the answer is yes. Every Christian goes through those seasons in our life where we feel as though the Lord is not answering our prayers. So this psalm teaches us how to cry out to God in faith when life situations are desperate and there is seemingly no hope in sight. It also instructs us how God the Father answered his son in his prayers from the cross. Obviously, this is a messianic psalm. The Lord quoted this psalm and appropriated this psalm on the cross. Our Lord, as I just said, quoted this psalm from the cross. He saw it fulfilled in his suffering. He knew that he must suffer, but that he would be raised and would stand in the heavenly assembly where all would praise, worship, and honor him for delivering us from eternal abandonment in hell. David would offer a peace offering at the end of this psalm. He offers a peace offering in thanksgiving and praise the Lord for his deliverance. Christ, in fact, was our peace offering, and we will eternally bow the knee and offer praise to him. So we're going to approach this psalm historically. We're going to look at the event in David's life. This was an event in David's life where he was being executed. This is some event. We're going to approach it in that sense, too. But then we're going to look at the greater fulfillment and how this was fulfilled in the life and the death, the crucifixion of our Lord. So I have a summary statement. David felt abandoned by the Lord, and he laments his suffering at the hands of his scornful enemies who are slowly executing him. Yet he perseveres in prayer to the faithful Lord and experiences sudden deliverance, leading him to praise and public adoration of the Lord, resulting in the nations turning to the Lord. This this psalm finds its ultimate fulfillment in the suffering of Christ on the cross. So Psalm 22 is considered a lament psalm, but with elements of declarative praise. That is, it's not a standard, just traditional lament psalm, because David ends this psalm with a great declaration of praise. 
There are many lament psalms in the psalms. One that we often think about would be Psalm 137. That's a national lament. This is kind of a classic lament. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Psalm 2, however, David laments a personal event in his life, a life, an event of great suffering. But he's going to end the psalm with this great public declaration of praise to the Lord. The psalm has these clear and deep messianic elements as Jesus quoted from the cross this psalm. Many of the events that played out in Jesus' execution are foretold in this psalm to the letter. And thus, the very tormentors of our Lord fulfilled the prophecy confirming him as Messiah. David describes his suffering as an execution, and the elements of his suffering easily describe the crucifixion that our Lord underwent. The typology, that is, David in this psalm is in essence a type of Christ. The typology is very strong. Think about these words that we just read. David is suffering unjustly. He's been captured probably by his enemies. Nothing that David did wrong. Our, our Lord, right? Never ask God for forgiveness for a wrong that he has done to bring about this suffering. And he does not invoke a prayer of vengeance for those who are attempting to execute him. As our Lord said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. So David never invokes a prayer that God would destroy these enemies who are in fact executing him. It's important to see how the Holy Spirit inspired David to use the very language that he uses in this psalm that would in fact describe the execution of Jesus. David also ends this psalm with this great praise declaration that ultimately finds its fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we don't really know the exact events we don't really know in detail what happened to David. And if you look back in all of the recording of David's life from 1 Samuel 16 on through uh, 1 Kings and then again in the Chronicles, there's never an event that's recorded that exactly fits this. However, all that we have written in the scriptures is just a summary. It's just a very synopsis of David's life. David reigned 40 years. David's whole life was as a man of war and a man of battle. David was constantly in danger, constantly in caves, constantly hiding from Saul. I think we can easily see how these events may have played out in David's life. It seems as though David has been taken captive, that David's been taken captive by his enemies, that there's no one else around him, and that they are slowly torturing and executing him in this psalm. So in this psalm, David's going to use language which in fact probably exceeds even the event that's happening to him. Some people would say that this is hyperbole that David was using, but we have to say this is inspired hyperbole. We understand that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David is guided to use language that describes, in fact, a greater suffering and a greater reward. That is the suffering of the Messiah. And this is what we see throughout the Old Testament, right? The prophets, think of the prophets. They describe historical events, but the language they use is just exceeds the events that are happening because it foretells greater events, greater prophecies of events to come. That's the way we look at Psalm 22, an event that was happening to David, but he's looking at something much greater, that's Christ, Christ the Messiah, and what would happen to him. There's a great quote um, from an Old Testament theologian. For as the Father molds the history of Jesus Christ in accordance with his own counsel, so his spirit molds even the utterances of David concerning himself, the type of the future one, with a view to that history. 
So also that David was a prophet is testified to in the New Testament. Peter said this in Acts 2. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had spoken to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned in Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. So even the New Testament attests to the fact that David is prophesying in his writings. Our Lord himself also said this. Think about Luke 24, 44, the road to Emmaus. What, what the Lord said to those people walking with him on the road, his disciples. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So let's look at just a few of these verses that are the messianic elements of this psalm before we dive into the psalm in detail. The most famous, of course, is Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So our Lord Jesus quotes this to the letter on the cross. So Mark quotes it as, Eloi lama, Eloi, Eloi lama sabachthani, which is the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew. They would have spoken Aramaic. But our Lord, when he quotes the first verse of this psalm, he in essence appropriates the entire psalm to deal with his sufferings on the cross. Psalm 22, verse 7, and Psalm 22, verse 8, David's going to talk about how his enemies taunt him. They laugh him to scorn. They tell him to cast yourself on the Lord. Let him deliver you since you delight in him. Turn over to Matthew 27. Let's just read this, this close parallel. Again, here come the sunglasses. I'm not the drug dealer, but I've got to see what I'm reading here. So... Okay, Matthew 27. And those who were passing by were hurling abuse at him and wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we shall believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now, if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. Isn't it ironic? The Jews would have known Psalm 22. They would have known it by heart. And they're quoting this psalm to our Lord at the foot of the cross as they're taunting and mocking him for claiming to be the Son of God. And in the doing this, the Jews themselves are what? They're fulfilling the Messianic prophecy, aren't they? They're fulfilling the prophecy of David in Psalm 22 as they are mocking our Lord at the foot of the cross. Other clear allusions in this psalm to what happened to Christ. David will talk about in Psalm 22, 15, He's all dried up. He's dying. His body is desiccated. He says, my tongue cleaves to my jaws. Many people see an allusion to Jesus' words from the cross, John 19, I thirst. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. this is a clear allusion to what happened to Jesus, a prophecy. David says his enemies, remember what we read? They're dividing his garments and casting lots for his garments. We know exactly that happened to our Lord. The Roman soldiers were casting lots for his clothes. Psalm 22, 24, and 31, David talks about 
when he cried to the Lord, he heard him. That's referenced in Hebrews 5, 7, where it talks about the Lord with many cries and tears. When he cried to the Father, the Lord heard him and answered. Psalm 22, 22. I will declare your name in the assembly. The writer to the Hebrews also directly quotes this in Hebrews 2.12. Dusty talked about this passage some number of weeks ago. This talks about the resurrection when Jesus will stand in the assembly of heaven and all will praise him. So a few of the main points of this psalm, and we are going to dive into this psalm here in a minute, but I think it's important that we lay some nice, strong biblical groundwork so that you understand the importance and the significance of this psalm because this is indeed one of the grand psalms in the Psalter. So some of the man, main points I would say are, and these are pretty, pretty clear. At times, believers may feel abandoned by God when it seems he is not answering our prayers. That is, seems. God always hears us, doesn't he? In these times, we recall all that the Lord has done for us in the past. David will do that. He will recall all of God's answers in the past. We never give up our trust in the Lord, even if his answer is not in this life. We live and die in faith. Sometimes God will answer in a different way, at a different time, in a better way, in a better time, our prayers. And sometimes that's when we stand before the Lord in heaven to live as Christ, to die as gain. Just think about it. If David had been executed, if he had died, what's the worst thing that could have happened to him? He would have been in heaven. That's right, Susan. He would have been in heaven. He would have been standing before the Lord God Almighty, pray, or bowing before the Lord God Almighty and praise. The worst thing is the best thing, in essence, for believers. The other thing we learn in this psalm is we learn to praise God for his answers. That's the whole last 10 verses of this psalm. We have to stand and declare our praise before all those around us that the Lord has answered our prayers. Because if we do that, it will bring people to Christ and it will encourage those around us to worship. The other things we clearly learn in this psalm is that Christ was in fact abandoned by the Father on the cross when he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. That in fact, you and I who believe in God, in Christ, would never be abandoned. That's the hope we have. As Christ was made a curse for us, he was abandoned, that you and I who believe would never be abandoned by the Father. And the Father actually did answer the Lord's prayers in the resurrection of Christ. So just a few last words about the structure as we, then we're gonna dive into the psalm. Psalms were sung in worship, right? We know that. Psalms were, they were sung. There were stanzas. There were verses in these psalms because they're poetry. They're Hebrew poetry. There's something important to know that. Our Lord, when he went to the cross, he would have known Psalm 22 by heart. He would have known all the psalms by heart. It's interesting. He appropriated Psalm 22 because obviously it was the prophecy fulfilling what was about to happen to him. In a lament such as Psalm 22 there are cycles where David cries out in complaint. We'll see this. David will have lines where he cries out in complaint to the Lord, followed by statements of his confident hope and trust in the Lord. There will be a petition proper, and in most laments, they'll make a vow to praise the Lord when he delivers. So in most of the laments, what you'll see other psalms is the psalms say, Lord, I'm in this trouble. Please deliver me. And if you deliver me, oh, the rescue. <laughs> I have been rescued, so yay. So they'll make a vow to praise and stand in the assembly and praise the Lord. In this psalm, 
there is no such vow because, in fact, God suddenly answered David in the midst of his lament, in the midst of his prayers. He never even got to the vow because, David, because the Lord answered him. That verse we read, verse 21b, you have answered me. And then from verses 22 through 31, David will break out in this exuberant declaration of praise with the promise that he will yet too bring a peace offering and stand and declare his testimony before all of those in worship. In essence, it's going to be a testimony meeting where David will stand before all the congregation of Israel and he'll give them the exact details of what happened to him and how the Lord answered his prayer and delivered. So let's dive into the psalm. So the first 10 verses are the first section of this psalm and we might call this David's opening cry to God and David's opening complaint but his cycles of confidence. So we're going to see two cycles where David's going to have verses where he complains to the Lord about his situation but then he falls back on his confident hope knowing who the Lord is. Verse 1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but thou dost not answer. So what is David's chief complaint? I mean, this is the chief complaint of the psalm. What's David complaining to the Lord about? No answer, that's right. He thinks God has done what? God's not answering, so what does that mean? He's abandoned him. He has forsaken him. God is nowhere to be found. In fact, he amplifies that in the second, ver- in the, uh, second stanza, 1B. Far away from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. That is his prayers. He said, my prayers are here, but Lord, you're way off in the distance. I don't even see you. There's no help in sight whatsoever. In fact, in the Hebrew, this word groaning really means roaring. It's the same word David will use later in the psalm where he talks about the roaring of the lions. So his plight is so desperate that he, in fact, is just this roaring in his cries. And is this a one-time event? What does David say? How, how long is this going on? Verse 2. Day and night, that's right. That's why I think we understand this was not just a sudden David was ambushed by his enemies. They probably had him in captivity. They were probably torturing him. And David is, maybe he's being held in a cell somewhere. But uh, he's crying out, roaring out to the Lord day and night. And he hears nothing from the Lord whatsoever. So this is a deep situation for David. This is David's main complaint. This is the complaint we have to deal with, wrestle with, when God is not hearing our prayers and he seems far away. But there's something still, I think, in these verses that we can glean about David's faith. How does David address God? How does David address the Lord in verse 1? My God. Yes, my God. My God. He has not abandoned the Lord for any other hope on this earth. He is still calling out to my God. And that's our point of faith to his believers. Even in the most desperate situations, he is still our God and we cry out to him. And implied in those words, my God, is everything it means about the covenant God of Israel, the covenant God who is faithful to them, who loves them. David is calling out to God and relying on all of those things. You are my God. You are the covenant God of Israel. You have been faithful to me all my life. So let's talk about Christ as Christ appropriated the psalm and these words on the cross. 
So did Jesus feel abandoned on the cross? He did. And was Jesus abandoned on the cross? And why was Jesus abandoned? What's the theology behind this? Let's talk just a second. Jesus is God and man, fully God, fully man, inseparable. But there is no mixture of the two, right? He's fully divine. He's fully man. In his humanity, he suffers the pain of the cross. And what is happening? What is transacting on the cross that causes, as we sing in our psalms, the Father turned his face away? What happens on the cross? That's exactly right. God's pouring out his wrath on Christ as he is bearing our sins. That's the key, right? That's the key. Why Jesus felt abandoned? Because he, as Paul will say in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So it is at that moment when God is pouring out his wrath on Christ, having made him a curse for us, that the Lord Jesus... I think as Jesus talks about the cup, the cup that he would bear, this, this was the cross. The physical pain must have been beyond description as they pierced his hands and his feet. But this was the suffering of the cross, that he would have the Father's face turned away, that he would feel abandoned as he is bearing the wrath for our sins. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that wonderful? That's the heart of the gospel, that he is our substitution. He bears it for us. He bears that, that we would never be abandoned. That's another theme I'll say again and again. Christ is abandoned for us in his human nature that we would never be abandoned who hope and believe in him. So we have pray with increasing confidence because those of us who know Christ, we know without a doubt we will never be abandoned. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor I will I forsake you. That's a great promise that we have from the Lord. So David now is going to move into some confidence statements. He's laid out a complaint before the Lord that he feels abandoned, that God is far off, but he falls back in verses 3 and 5 on his confidence. Yet thou art holy, O thou who art enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In thee our fathers trusted, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. To thee they cried out and were delivered. In thee they trusted and were not disappointed. So the key to this confident assertion of David is that first verse, verse 3. Yet thou art holy. Why does David start with those words? What does it mean that God is holy? And why does he go to that immediately? Yes, he loves God. That's right. And he knows God. That's that's, That's the key, right? But what does it mean that God's holy? What is God's holiness? And why does that comfort David at this time when he feels abandoned? Go ahead, Abel. Yeah, he saw the hope. Okay. Solid hope. Yeah. Sovereign hope. Yeah. I'll hear it eventually. I don't have glasses for my eyes, my ears. God is holy. I like what Michael Reeves says in his book on the Trinity. If you just want kind of a layman's definition, it means God is not like us. God is not like us. 
And that means he's not like us in anything, right? And it refers back to all of God's attributes, everything that God is. That's his holiness. That's his otherness. That's his separation, his difference from us, right? And we think about all of the attributes that we use to describe God, that he is just and righteous and good and wise and merciful and kind and gracious and everything we know about God. That's what it means in his holiness. He is not like us. And I think this is the strength that David has, that he looks immediately to realize, I see my earthly situation, but I trust in my God because I know he is not like me. He is always faithful. You know, do you ever think about Psalm 73? I think this is kind of the heart of Psalm 73, isn't it? You know that Psalm, right? Asaph, when Asaph sees what's happening to all the rich and they're prosperous. We can kind of see that these days, right? They're rich, nothing ever happens to them. They never suffer. They're always fat and happy and sassy and nothing ever happens to them in the end. They're never punished for their sins. And then what does Asaph say? The key words that Asaph says in that psalm. Then I did what? What did Asaph do when he, he got clued in? He went to the sanctuary of God. That's right. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. When Asaph took his eyes off of the whole situation, he looked at God and he looked at who God is he realized everything. It brings everything into perspective. And that's why David starts with this. He looks to God and it brings everything in perspective, all that he is suffering, right? So he's going to go on to say in the next couple of verses that he's going to talk about who God is. God is, in fact, enthroned on the praises of Israel. You know, God doesn't have a temple. We build him a temple. They built him a temple. They built him a sanctuary, but God doesn't reside in sanctuaries or temples made with men's hands. That's Isaiah 66. David says God is enthroned on the praises. That means that God has this history of living in the glorious worship and praise of his people. He's enthroned because his people are constantly praising him and worshiping him for his holiness and his deliverances. And David knows this. God has this history, and he's, in fact, enthroned in these praises. And then he's going to go on and remember the history of the nation of Israel, right? Our fathers trusted and were delivered. Think about that. This is so common in the Old Testament. We need to do this more often, right? They would always look back to all of God's deliverances. What's the great deliverance that they always remembered in the Old Testament? Out of Egypt. That's exact. Oh, I got the answer man back there. That's right. <laughs> but they did. They frequently looked back to God's deliverance from Egypt because God delivered them out of the hand of Pharaoh. He delivered them across the Red Sea. That was the great deliverance and salvation and birth of the nation. But it's more. You could go back, you could go back to Adam, right? The whole history of man. You go back to Adam and Noah and all of Abraham and Isaac. Jacob and Joseph, then you could move forward. You could go to Joshua. You go through the judges, all those cycles of the judges, good judges and bad judges. You know, they sinned, they fell, they cried out to God, and God delivered them. David could look back at all of that history of the Old Testament and say, God has always delivered his people. That gives me hope that this is who my God is, and that he is, in fact, a deliverer that would give him confidence. So how do we do that? I just would stop and ask just a practical application. That's an important thing for us to do as believers. How do we remember all of the things that God has done for us, all the history of his answers to prayers and his deliverances for us? 
Do you keep a journal ever? Or do you keep a mental journal? Or do you remember when you're in times of trial, think about who our faithful God is and what he's done for you in the past and how he's answered prayers and how he lives up to his promises? That's kind of what David's doing right here is he's going back on that history. Okay, so let's look at the second cycle. So David's going to come back now in verses 6 and 10, and he's going to lay out another complaint before the Lord, but he's going to come back also with more great confidence. We, we read these verses. He's going to talk about how in verses 6 through 10, he says, I'm a worm, I'm not a man. He's going to say, my enemies, this is how his enemies are treating him. They're treating him like just a worthless worm in the dirt. In fact, he says, I'm a reproach. I'm despised by these enemies. So they have no regard for David. Again, we don't know at this point whether this is before David was, was coronated as king or after he was coronated as king. We have no idea. Regardless, they have no respect for David. We talked about the messianic parallel. This is where they taunt David for his faith. Verse 7, they sneer at me. They separate, that is, they shoot out their lips at him. They wag their heads saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Again, this is David's enemies who are saying all these things. They would have known about David's faith. Regardless of whether he was king or not at this point, they must have known about David's faith, that he trusted in the Lord, that he was relying on the Lord, and yet they mock him for his faith. And again, this is a direct parallel back to the suffering of our Lord on the cross. Yet David is going to fall back one more time to his confidence and his hope in the Lord in verses 9 and 10. And this is his very strong personal confidence. What, David has, what God has done specifically for David, not just for the nation of Israel, but David's going to talk about what has God done for me personally all of my life. In fact, he's been his God and he's trusted in the Lord all through his life. Yet thou art he who dost bring me forth from the womb. Thou dost make me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. So we get that sense. David's absolutely saying, Psalm 139 comes to mind, doesn't it? The Lord conceived him in his mother's womb. Since the time he was conceived in his mother's womb and he was born and he was on her breast nursing, God has been his God. There has never been a time in his life when God has not been God. He's never followed the false gods. He's never followed the gods of this world. He's always followed the Lord God. And in fact, God has never let him down. Maybe David is thinking about some of the great deliverances that happened in his life. So what were some of those great notable deliverances that we do have recorded in the scriptures? Saul in the cave, I heard that one. I heard Goliath, I love Goliath, right? What did, what did David say when he stood before Saul? You know, this is before he was anointed king. Saul and the army were out fighting the Philistines and Goliath was defying the armies of the Lord. And they, David, David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who denies the armies of the living God? And they send him to Saul. And Saul says, basically, you can't do this. He's a mighty man. And what does David say? What was his response to Saul? That Absolutely. Isn't that wonderful? A shepherd in the hills of Judea, with his bare hands, he killed the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like the lion 
and the bear. So what does David say? What does David do? He doesn't have a spear or a sword. He has what? Stones. Can you imagine? You imagine this is a nine foot tall giant, you know, we, a huge man who petrified the armies. And these were not cowardly men. These were the armies of Israel who petrified them. Yet David picked up stones and went to the Philistine and David defied Goliath to his face, didn't he? And he said, basically, this day, I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna cut your head off and I'm gonna feed you to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David did it by the grace of God. That stone found its mark and killed Goliath. This is David. David can look back at the whole history of his life. He has seen this again and again. When, as we heard back there, He was delivered in the cave many times from the hand of Saul. God delivered him. All through his life, he can see God's deliverances. Again, we don't know exactly what point this happened, but I think it probably happened after the Goliath event at least, right? So David can look back and see. This is the robust, confident heart of faith that David has. David knows God's never let the nation down and God has never let me down, even in this difficult situation. So now David's going to turn back to the plight of his condition. So we have these cycles where David's going to have these complaints and his confident hope, but David's going to turn back now and he's really going to describe in detail in the next few verses what his enemies are doing to him. And this is again where a lot of our typology, the type of Christ, we see how his enemies are persecuting him and executing him, how it looks forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. So David's going to begin, we call this his lament proper, verses 11 through 18, with a prayer to the Lord. You'll not see the stanzas of confidence in this section, but you're going to see David's prayer of confidence and hope. In fact, verse 11, David's going to call on God to come to his aid because there is no one to help. Verse 11, be not far from me for trouble is near, for there is none to help. So we know a couple of things by this. One, we know David was alone, right? There were none of his mighty men with him. They were not even in sight. None of his armies, nobody was around. David was isolated, again, probably in captivity, and there is no one to help. When there's no one to help, who do we depend on? It's who we should depend on, right, Susan? Yeah, the Lord. But God had put... God in his providence, God is building history in his providence, right? God put David exactly in this moment, exactly in this situation to turn David's heart back to him to help him know that God would deliver. David's going to talk about how ferocious his enemies were. And you have to understand poetic language, but he uses poetry to describe the true, real ferocity of his enemies and what they were doing to him. And the way that the psalmists typically do this is they'll talk about they, this is what the enemies are doing to me. I, this is what's happening to me because of what they're doing. And then they'll talk about God. And David does this. So his first they cycle is verses 12 and 13. He's going to describe his enemies as Bulls, that's right. (laughs) Many bulls. It can also be translated mighty bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. So what's that? I'll just say Bashan was a fertile land east of the Jordan known for its large bulls and cattle. So this was real imagery that David had. Why would he use this imagery of bulls? What does this invoke 
or evoke about his enemies. Power, that's right. Strength, toughness. These are not wimps who have David, who are about to kill David, right? What about a roaring lion? What does that invoke? What do you think of? He's describing his enemies as a roaring lion. Terrifying, Terrifying. that's right. Yeah, why does a lion roar usually when it's around its prey? Yeah, because they're gonna die, to scare them, to terrify them. And that's the way David's describing these people. So whatever they were doing, they were mighty, they were ferocious, they were powerful, they were circling him. In fact, it's interesting because the Hebrew word for circle really relates to crown, and you get the sense that David says, they're about to be victorious because they're circling me like a crown. So that's the they, this is what his enemies are doing to him, and here's the I. David says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And thou dost lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. So David's falling apart, basically. He's describing in great graphic poetic detail how he feels, right? He's emaciated, he's dehydrated, his bones are out of joint. They are probably torturing David. um, And this is the situation with him. His heart is melted like wax. That is his inner man. The heart, you know, in Hebrew would be the inner man, his inner strength. It's finally beginning to melt in his inner soul. And he's dried up like a potsherd. That is, he's just dehydrated. So they have definitely tortured David. So this, again, is probably a messianic parallel where David says his tongue cleaves to his jaw, where our Lord said, I thirst. Yet another parallel back to, back to the cross. So strong enemies. David's at, almost at the point of death at this point. And now we come to the difficult verse, Right? And thou, verse 15b, and thou dost lay me in the dust of death. So who's the thou and what's David saying? What is the dust of death? Who's the thou? God. And what's the dust of death? Somebody. The dust of death, it's just kind of poetic, but what's David saying in essence? Talk about the dust, the dirt. You're laying me in the dirt, right? The grave. He's basically saying in the psalm is, Lord, you're allowing me to die. Lord, you are laying me. You're, in essence, killing me and laying me and putting me in the dust of death. So we have to kind of circle back, I think, back to verse 3. Why would David say this? And knowing David, this is an honest plea to God that he's about to die. I think we come back to verse 3, though, where David said, Thou art holy. David knows whatever happens, this is God's will. This is God who has never abandoned him. Even if God lays him in the grave, he is still my God. He is my God forever and eternally. So let's move on to cycle two. David's going to talk even more now in detail because he's just about at the point of death and he knows that he's about to be laid in the grave. 
And I, before I move to that, I would say this. You know, the Lord God did lay Jesus in the grave, right? He did that for us. This is more of the typology of this psalm. Jesus was not rescued from the cross. He bore it to the max, and he died on the cross, and he was laid in the tomb. But that answer was the resurrection. So verses 16 and 18, David's going to describe the final finishing off, as it were. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So dogs in the Middle East, the ancient Near East, would not have been just kind of like the neighborhood dogs. These would have been jackals. These would have been vicious, wild, terrifying dogs. And when David says, in essence, they pierce my hands and my feet, the picture there is that these dogs may have been, in fact, nipping at his hands and his feet and piercing his hands and his feet. But we get the sense again, they're circling him. In fact, they're closing in for the kill. And Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David describes it in language again that alludes back to the cross when they pierced our Lord's hand and his feet. This is also in the prophecy of Zechariah, Zechariah 12.10. They pierced my hands and my feet. And David now says, you know, they've even divided my garments, right? His enemies have taken my clothes. He's not going to need them anymore. He's about to be laid in the grave. And they're casting lots for them and dividing them. So this refers back, directly back to our Lord, doesn't it? What happened on the cross. So David's last prayer, this is his final prayer, verse 19. But thou, O Lord, be not far off. O thou, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild ox. Thou hast answered me. So David's final prayer to the Lord, this is it, Lord. I'm at the point of death. And David cries out in this great petition to the Lord, don't be afar off any longer. Come and save me. And we know, we know in that last half of verse 21, God answered him. We don't know how he answered him, but David says, you have answered me. It's very clear in the Hebrew text. And again, the whole rest of the psalm changes. So we know this happened. We know that God delivered him. God answered his prayer. Being a great Western fan, I like to think that the cavalry came riding over the hill, right? (laughs) Blowing the trumpet and waving the flag, right? Or that the Delta force of the seals dropped in on him, you know? Or his mighty men came. Or who knows, the Lord may have opened the ground and swallowed up his enemies or slaughtered them with hail or wild beasts. We'd have no idea. But God answered David and God made it clear. And what was David's response? Immediately after God delivers him, he does what? He praises. He declares his praise immediately. So this comes to the final section of this psalm, his declaration of praise. David resolves to praise the Lord in the assembly for his great deliverance, encouraging others to join him in praising God and anticipating that future generations will turn to God because of his deliverance from death. I will tell of thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise thee. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel." For he has not despised nor abhorred the afflicted, the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. 
So David says he'll declare the name. The name of God is back linked to God's holiness. God's name is what? The famous line in Hebrew is Baruch Hashem Ha'adonai. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is everything he is, right? The name of the Lord encompasses everything about him. That's his holiness. That's everything. David says, I'm going to declare that in the congregation. So in these verses, he's going to praise the Lord. He's going to invite others to join him in that praise. He's going to tell them, don't lose heart. Even in the most desperate situation, God answers prayer. So what would have happened? David would have offered a peace offering. This is what he's talking about. He would have offered probably a bull. This was the only time that the nation could go into the sanctuary. But in this peace offering, as his offering is roasting on the fire, the poor would come. The poor could of this offering too. David would stand probably with his hand beside the altar and he would tell every detail of everything that just happened. He'd go back through this psalm and talk about how his enemies almost killed him. But yet he trusted in the Lord God of Israel who delivered him. That's a great witness, a great testimony. And not only, think about this, they would all have this communal meal, they would sit and eat together and hear David talk about what he had done. This was a great testimony to all of them. And the poor would eat. The poor who themselves may have been praying that God would provide food for them, God does because God delivers David and David offers his peace offering and they all come and praise and worship God for his great deliverance. So in these last few verses, and I'll summarize these because we're just about out of time. From thee comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. That is the poor I just talked about. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. David is encouraging everyone, just be strong and mighty in the Lord because he answers our prayer. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done it. So this language, this is more of this messianic prophetic language because in these last few verses, this probably exceeds anything that would have happened with this event in David's life. The nation, what David is saying is because of what's happened, because of this praise and honor and glory we give to the Lord, even the nations will come and worship. Thinking back to our Lord Jesus Christ, how is this fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. Yes, Susan's got it. The gospel, the gospel is taken to the world because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, his prayers were answered in the resurrection. David's prayers were answered in a physical deliverance. Christ's prayers from the cross are answered in his resurrection. And because of his resurrection, there is a gospel. Because of his resurrection, there is good news that can be proclaimed to all the nations and all the world. And all the world will come and worship. Philippians 2, 9 and 10 says it the best. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth 
and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's the answer. We'll stand in the assembly and praise and worship our Lord Jesus Christ throughout all eternity. It's a couple of lessons. So just circling back again, what we have to take home from this psalm. We always call on God as David did. He's my God. We never lose hope in our God. Even if the worst thing happens to us and he lays us in the grave, better to be with Christ, right? We see that as the worst thing. That's the best thing in essence. He's always our God. Remember who God is. Remember his character. Remember that he is holy. He is not like us in all our dealings. Sometimes we can't understand or figure it out why things are happening, but he is holy. Remember what he has done for his people in the past. Remember what he's done for this body in the past. Remember what he has done for you in the past when you're in dire situations. He's never let you down. And praise him. That's the important thing. Don't just shoot out a tweet. Don't just shoot out a Facebook. Praise him. In your home fellowship, wherever you can, give praise to the Lord. Tell people these answers because it encourages people. It draws people to worship the Lord when they see you praising him. And praise God for his marvelous grace. It's a testimony to the world, not just believers in this body, but we have unbelievers who come in, but praise the Lord. Let them see what God does for us. And remember what this psalm tells us about Christ. God saved David from death. He did not save Jesus. Though Jesus was separated from the Father, in death we will be carried to the Father because he was separated. We will never be separated. Romans 8, 38 and 39. And we have no fear in death. This got left off your notes. I apologize. We have no fear in death because Jesus drank that cup to the fullest on the cross and was resurrected. We too will be resurrected with him. Let's pray and we will be done for the morning. Father, we thank you. Thank you for Psalm 22. The depths are amazing to us. You are holy, Lord. You are not like us. You are sovereign and righteous and just and good and you never let us down. Even if we're dying of cancer, you never let us down. You hold our hands and you bring us to you in glory. You deal with us in the smallest and the greatest trials in this life and we praise you. We praise you for Jesus Christ who drank the cup to the fullest and help us to walk in that grace to walk in that truth every day. In his name we pray, amen.